0: Is Transitional Matters with Chris Marshall. With Chris Marshall, we've gathered the best thinkers from around the world. To talk about the most important social, environmental, financial, technological, and geopolitical transitions that affect your life. Transitional Matters is all about bringing the greatest thinkers directly to your ears. The most important trends, megatrends, and transitions that are going on around us. Now zip up and put your headphones on. Broadcasting direct from the UK. Here's your host, Chris Marshall.
1: Well, welcome to episode nine of Transitional Matters. And today I'm joined by Marco Papic once again. Marco, you were on the show just a few months ago. Uh, Now, if if you didn't catch that, Marco's a, a partner and chief strategist at Clock Tower Group. Based out in Santa Monica. So it's great to get you back on. Now, last time we were delving into your book, Geopolitical Alpha. We were looking at kind of the constraints framework that you apply, and you were kind of describing how it's kind of a tool in a toolbox. And we were looking at everything from China to Russia to some of the the kind of the history. Now, today, we're going to kind of basically take the conversation forward. We're going to actually see how far we can look out, and we're going to talk about how each of us as strategists kind of put together a framework. So this is going to be pretty much a free-flowing conversation. We'll just basically see where it goes. So for me, one of the things which drove me to write my book, So Decoding Change, which is out in uh, a month or so, was really what I see going on is massive amount of uncertainty. This is in the general population. And this comes from, in my view, when we go through these periods of massive transition, whether that's at a geopolitical level, whether it's at an economic level, whatever layer of society you want to take, They're very cognitively painful moments for us as humans. So, my background is obviously as a futurist and a behavioral scientist. So, yeah, I want to get some of your views about how you look at the future. And when you're looking out, what are some of the things that you kind of see going on? In fact, can I start by getting what are the things, what are the big trends, mega trends that you kind of see going on now, whether they're in full development or just beginning?
2: Well, thank you so much, Chris, again, for having me on the show. And and I'm really glad that we're going to talk about like the big picture. I spent probably 85% of my time in my office thinking about what I call geopolitical alpha, which is hashtag plug-in for my book, right? So that's the title of the book. Uh, we're both plugging. Like, everyone's like, okay, fine. We're going to buy your book. So geopolitical alpha is really about, like, the tactical. You know, it's about generating alpha, returns above expected, returns in the market, using politics and geopolitics. But that's really about, like, the upcoming Italian election or whether Vladimir Putin is going to truly turn off natural gas to Europe. And I mean, look, that's fun too, right? But like, what's really fun is what you're talking about, which is thinking about the long-term. And you can call that like geopolitical beta. You know, what are these long-term trends that you can just coast, you can just ride if you get them right? And I think, you know, one of the most important ones, as you said, the mega trends, is that I think we're moving away from technological epoch, like this kind of like uh, moment in history of humankind where our means of production, to use a Marxist term, our means of production were focused on scaling. You know this is the race to scale, which is what the Industrial Revolution really was. It was this ability to create products and goods for the median consumer. And that's really important, and we can talk about that later. but effectively, the Industrial Revolution destroyed all the guilds, all the craftsmen who would do things more on a custom basis at a very high cost, and they produced scalability. And so we started scaling everything. We started scaling production of steel, of coal, production of guns, production of men with guns, production of, you know, little kids who could read. Everything started being scaled to the point where we started competing in who can scale more. So, you know, late 19th century, early 20th century newspapers used to print out like, oh my God, Germany produced more coal. And iron and weave it. This was something that people reading the Times of London would be like, oh my God, no, we lost the coal race in 1897. And it was always fascinating to me when I went to school that people actually looked at data like that, charts like that, and were, you know, thinking in terms of kind of nationalism and like competition between nations. And I think that the biggest change, the biggest trend is that we're moving away from that. I think the race to scale is going to be replaced by what I call the race to zero, which is Where not only are we going to try to produce with less resources, output, but we're also going to try to have less output. Not because we want to save the planet or anything like that, but just because scaling is stupid. You know, you and I may have a different source of a headache. You might have a headache because you have chronic migraines. I might have a headache because I'm dehydrated. And so both of us popping an aspirin is probably suboptimal. Instead, what we can do is we can have customized like drugs for each other. We can have customized school systems. We can have customization in terms of energy, in terms of food. And I think that you're going to start seeing that trend. And that trend is really enabled, not just by concerns about sustainability or the environment. I know a lot of people are probably rolling their eyes. Fossil fuel prices are very high. Last thing people want to talk about is windmills now. But I think this has more to do with a lot of other things. It also has to do with the fact that commodities are in a super cycle. They're very expensive. We're going to be pushed into less scale and more customization. The other thing is we finally have the software. We finally have the data to actually do something like customization. You know, and this goes back to like, you know, you and I probably grew up watching the same number of channels in our house. I mean, I grew up in Yugoslavia, so I had like 3. And then you know, we got to the point of on-demand and stuff, but now Netflix or whatever other streaming tool will tell you like, hey, you actually want to watch this. And that's kind of the world where I think we're headed. That was made possible with the fact that we do have machine learning, we do have, quote, unquote, AI, we have the ability to actually go away from scale and customize. So both manufacturing, production, but also the knowledge and the data to specifically target what we need to produce at what time. And I think that's really interesting. I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand. I think it's extremely deflationary. But getting there over the next decade is going to be extremely inflationary because we have to retool away from race to scale to race to zero.
1: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I actually term this the age of awareness, but we're actually talking about exactly the same thing. For me in the age of awareness, environmentalism, kind of all of these other things going on, whether people are disgruntled by the authenticity of production or anything else. The age of awareness for me is the next step. If you think of it, the history of development in ages. So we come through the information technology age, which allows us really through this wonderful invention of the semiconductor, Just to be super analytical. We can measure stuff, we can process stuff. And what we're now about to step into is using that to make far more informed decisions. And as you say, customize stuff and bring it, bring this all together. So actually, I think that kind of the environmentalist piece or the climate change piece is just a tip of the iceberg. It's actually for much bigger movement. And I would actually say that this is a change in the philosophy of culture. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm very
2: Marxist when it comes to analysis. And what I mean by that is not that I want to take all your money, Chris. What that means is that I start with the material reality. You know, just like uh, philosophically speaking, I, I look at material world first. And your point is much more Hegelian. You know, you're looking at this much more from a human ideology and culture perspective. And what Marx would argue that ultimately, culture, ideology, thinking, they're all built on the foundation of means of production. During feudal times, we had really crappy means of production. We had like the plow, you know, great plows running around, you know, and, and so you needed peasants to like deal with food production. And so feudal, like religion, feudal culture basically came out of the fact we needed to have a bunch of serfs dragging plows through really shitty landscapes. And so we created a whole hierarchy, a whole tautology, kind of epistemic communities to support the fact that our means of production were what they are. And so, you know, like not to disagree with you, I would just say that absolutely there will be cultural and philosophical and ideological evolution that will follow this natural means of production change. But the catalyst itself is material reality. And the fact that we just don't have to produce as much as we did in order to do what we need to do. I mean, you can even look at it in terms of war. You know, it didn't help Russia that it had a superior advantage in in men. When it invaded Ukraine. Well, one, they were just stupid. Two, it's much more easier to use smaller scale maneuverable units to deal with a tank assault. You know, the Ukrainians pulled into cities, used javelins, they destroyed a bunch of Russian armor. And this is something that, again, is new. And I think it illustrates the weakness of scaling and the superiority of technology, you know, and customization. And I think that it's funny, I I live here in LA. I'll give you this anecdote, which kind of shows this. People are inherently getting turned off by sameness, you know? You said something that triggered this thought to me, but I had a, a really good friend of mine was here yesterday with his family, and I took him to the famous Third Street Promenade here in Santa Monica, where all the shops are. And he was like this, I can buy this everywhere. You know, like, you might as well be at Heathrow. You know, you might as well be anywhere. Except except for one store, one store which sold LA Dodgers gear, and they customized your shirts and stuff. They put names. So his kids got little hats with names on them. And I think this is something that people are starting. Like, why would you come to Los Angeles to shop at Pandora? Why would you come to Los Angeles to get a Starbucks? You know, And that's, that's I think, something that I think the cultural element of this, the desire of us as consumers to to have things that are more customized, that are more interesting, unique. I think that's coming out of the fact that those experiences are now available to us and they're cheap enough for us to actually experience them. And I think that that will just create this feedback cycle where people will want more and more of that. And so customization will be the way to go.
1: Absolutely, And actually, kind of coming back to that, the kind of what you were saying there, because I think it probably, I would agree with you on the production system a little bit more than perhaps I kind of alluded to. And that is, I think you need to combine both the innovation cycle so, this is the means of production, i.e., the, the leading technology of the day, with what I'm going to call the information revolution cycle. And so, what I mean by that is the information revolution cycle, I think, is fascinating. So, this is where we have a revolutionary point in time. Where information suddenly becomes far cheaper or easier to communicate. So we've had three, but in the middle of the third, I'm going to say the first was the Age of Discovery and the Gutenberg Press. So we're talking like 1300s, 1400s, and obviously up until that point, if you wanted to print a book before the Gutenberg Press, you needed like a team of like 18 scribes because it it would take them a year each to like write it out by hand. The information sharing came from a very, very small part of the population. And once you got the Gutenberg Press, I mean, this is suddenly revolutionized it. They could print 250 sheets an hour, which today by our standards is nothing, but back then was incredible. Combine that then with like Columbus and Diaz, you know, sailing the world, finding the new land. We suddenly have a kind of a system to distribute that information. So that was the first one. And then it's not surprising that you get the age of enlightenment come after that, a complete shift in philosophy of the world. The second one was then the, basically, I'd say that electrification and telephone. That again, up until that point, if we wanted to communicate with people halfway around the world, we'd send a telegram and it would take them, I don't know, two weeks, three weeks to receive it and two weeks, three weeks to get a reply if we even get one. All of a sudden, the telephone made it instant. And that speed of communication, and then we get to the golden age of science, again, a shift in understanding. I would say that we're halfway through the next one. And I I say halfway because, yeah, the internet's incredible, but we're about to like blend virtual and physical worlds. Like you and me are kind of, we can see each other 2D, but I think where this goes next is just mind-blowing and insane.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think every period you described, and Nate Silver talks about this in his book, Signal and Noise, which was obviously an amazing book for forecasters, and we should all read it. And he talks about this as well, but he, he mentions that all these periods were actually preceded with massive, massive deaths and calamities, so I look at something like Twitter. You know, I joined Twitter begrudgingly like two months ago, which is hilarious, and it's just vile. <laughs> you know, there's like ten percent of it is good, ninety percent of it is just terrible. So I, I worry that while well, you are right, I absolutely you can actually point out to it. You know, like three year olds are choosing their own videos now. Like there's data where we can point to that. I think COVID accelerated this as well because we were all stuck at home, kids young children uh, under the age of 10 are just completely in a different world. And when the virtual comes and the blending, all that stuff, it'll probably even get worse. But the issue is that I, I do worry that like we as a society are not prepared for the consequences of all this being plugged in. And I think that the anonymity of the internet is just terrible. I think there's like literally nothing good about it because it allows you to do things in that public square that you would never do in real life. And so I do think that We're going to have some really bad consequences out of it, just like the printing press ended up like, I think like something like one in seven German males died in the 30 years war. You know, like what happened after the printing press, obviously, is that we had the Reformation and various wars that came out after that. The religious warfare in Europe was vicious and uh, the Protestant Catholics. I mean, that was the the immediate consequence of the printing press was like mass genocide in Europe. The immediate consequence of the telegraph and various other forms of communication that came out of the 19th and early 20th century was World War II and the propaganda machines and like all this stuff. So I do fear that like our initial ability to digest all this stuff is pretty bad as humans. We suck at it.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, completely. Because, you know, if there's one thing that we hate as humans from a cognitive point of view is we hate uncertainty. And at these points in time, what you're doing is you're completely ripping up. The status quo, and you're replacing it with something potentially better, but still vastly different. But uh, yeah, I was actually going to come back to your uh, joining a Twitter because you're absolutely right. There's so much information, there's so much noise actually out there that it's very, very hard for us to kind of process that and discern. Well, what is this good? Is this bad? Is this right? Is it wrong? And I mean, if you look at this from the simple point of view. Of the algorithms going on behind it is one of the reasons that social media is so popular is because of confirmation bias. We love being in groups of people who reflect back our view. It's like super satisfying to us. And what does social media do? Well, it groups you together with other like minded people. And if you kind of think about that in groupthink terms or even echo chambers, then hey presto, it's like the best kind of drug you, you can find.
2: You know, it's funny, Chris, uh, you say that. I actually had my Twitter account set up by someone else in my office because again, like I hate Twitter. And then, you know, I got pushed into it. People were like, you have to be on Twitter. Fine. So I I gave it to one of my younger colleagues and they put all these kind of freaks onto my Twitter. And like three months into it, I'm like, why do I keep getting this conspiracy theory stuff? And I'm like, oh, because the initial setup was done by someone else. That's number one. Number two is I really love kittens. I just, I learned this over the past three months. I didn't think I was a cat person, but apparently the Twitter algorithm is like, no, you love cats. And so now all I get are these little kitten memes, which are really good. Uh, No, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. You're totally right. The echo chamber is the, I mean, you know, this has all been said, but I think, you know, I think one of the things that might be useful is if I can describe to you and and people listening, is kind of my thinking of long term forecasts. You know, because you asked me, Chris, to prepare kind of like some thoughts on this, and and I did. I write probably one or two really long term analyses a year. First of all, I mean, obviously for commercial reasons, I don't do it a lot because although I do work almost, I would say that 80% of my interactions are with long term investors, institutional investors, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds. But I would also say that most of them are not as long term Thinkers as they think they are. So, you know, you could show up every month for a conversation with a pension fund with some really cool long term things, but they're going to want to ask about Ukraine. So, you know, you give the people what they want. But I do occasionally get a chance to think about the long term. And and over the past decade, I, I would actually say my track record on like long term forecasting is better than on generating geopolitical alpha. Which I think I'm a little bit better than the flip coin, which is like very valuable. But like, you know, it it is what it is. It's it's tactical trading, it's tactical thinking. So longer term, I actually think that I'm much better for it. I think I have a better brain for it. I think a better like outlook and and just a personality for that. And so there's three things that I think are key to when you think about the long term. First of all, I think that reversion to the mean is a good concept to think about. Essentially what that means is you're just looking for things that have become overstretched relative to the past. So one of the things that I would say right now, especially in the kind of Anglo-Saxon economies, and I've been writing about this for the past six years, is income inequality. And You know, what's funny about this is we we often become like numb to how things are overstretched, and we start applying cultural biases to it, like, well, the UK and America are just more capitalist than the rest of the world. And then you look at UK, even recent history, like in the 50s and the 60s, the UK was far more redistributory, far more, quote unquote, socialist than France. United Kingdom begged the EU, begged it to join the high flying hot economies of Germany and France in the 50s, 60s. And then Charles de Gaulle was like, no, 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 that's a bad idea. And then he dies. And then finally, the UK enters the EU like knocking on the door, let us in. We want your high-flying capitalist economies. And then, of course, France does what France does after 68, and the role reverse. Market Margaret Thatcher comes in the 70s, late 70s, and does a, a revolution of less-fair capitalism. And then the UK becomes what it is today. But if you're sitting here today, you could very easily fall into a trap of thinking France socialist, England capitalist. And that's just like actually wasn't the case after the Second World War. So the point that I'm getting at is that Reversion of the, to the mean does matter, especially in human interactions and social interactions. Uh, you just have to like, be careful with this one. There is no reversion to the mean fairy, as I like to say. You know, and also, it's difficult to gauge the difference between a trend that is exhausted and is going to revert and a paradigm shift. Now, in technological issues, use of energy, use of resources, things like that, I think you can have paradigm shifts. I think something like income inequality, highly unlikely that you're going to have a paradigm shift where like 90% of the people are okay having like 2% of wealth. Like that's probably not going to happen. The second thing that I think has really served me well is non-linearity. I just think that a lot of folks in finance, they look at trends and extrapolate them into the future. So things like rise of China, China China-US tensions, these things must continue, right? Because like, well, look look at what's going on. And I, I'm always reminded of two things. First of all, my my one of my favorite movies, if not the favorite movie, is the 1982 blockbuster Blade Runner. And Blade Runner shows a dystopian Los Angeles in 2019. And what's funny about this is that it looks like Tokyo. The movie was made in 82. So like everyone's like eating udon noodles. There's like a bunch of Japanese people running around. There's like Japanese kanji everywhere. Like those advertisements and like, you know, it's very like, This film noir with like a Japanese hue to it, and you're watching this movie in like 2022, and you're like, "What the hell were these people thinking? We're all going to be dominated by 2019 by Japan." And so, I think a lot of people are doing that today. I mean, I'm famous in finance for one of the things that I did right was in 2012, 2013. I was talking U.S. China tensions, U.S. China tensions. Now, outside of finance, just to be clear, in the political risk industry and academia, many people were talking about that, but. You know, when I did this in finance, people thought I had three heads. I would go to Hong Kong and Singapore and I would give these lectures from these old Chinese people, you know, always old, who would tell me like, Marco, you don't know China, like culturally, we're not aggressive, all this, you know, stuff, nonsense. There will never be any tension. So I'm like, okay, well, maybe, but you don't know the West, you know? Anyways, the point of this is like, everyone was wrong in finance. Every I mean, pretty much every single person I met from 2012 to 2020 thought I was a uh, bad shit crazy. But now a lot of those people are coming back and they're surprised by how sanguine I am. And that's because, well, the time to forecast this was 2012 and 13. Now you're extrapolating into the Cold War 3.0, 2.0. Like There are limits to this trend. And I think that that's something that's very difficult for people to do. I think we have to look beyond trends. And often I think people catch those trends late and then they start extrapolating. The final one that I would say, and this one is probably the most difficult to wrap one's brain around, because this is very counterintuitive. As humans, we have this idiomatic expressions: "diamonds in the rough," "pressure makes diamonds." You know, and what this really refers to is the fact that if your starting conditions are extremely positive, you may not end up being the boss. You may not end up the hegemon. It's often like somebody or some entity that starts off. In pretty shitty circumstances, that rises to the top. In fact, it's those negative externalities that actually lead to innovation. You don't have to innovate if everything is good. And so the example of this, we were talking about like uh, the Age of Discovery. I mean, Age of Discovery was pretty much launched by a starving country at the precipice of the Iberian Peninsula. I mean, we're talking about Portugal, which was literally starving from the plague plague. The king creates a state-run fishing fleet that goes out to the North Atlantic to fish cod, salt it, bring it back to feed the population. Not because they were like, ooh, let's see what's up No, no, they were starving. And then a hundred years later, a set of circumstances occurs. The Ottomans plug the Silk Road. You can't have anything from China anymore. Sorry, we own all of that now. Eastern Mediterranean gets shut down by the Ottomans. And then some of the navigational technology does move up a little bit, allowing the Portuguese who were so experienced because they were trying to feed their starving population with COD, to circumnavigate around Africa and actually launch the Age of Discovery, it ends up being that 100 years later, this starving country, starving country that nobody could give a damn about in all of Europe ends up splitting the whole planet with Spain. you know And so to me, that's a great example of how innovation happens. The United Kingdom is the other example too. I mean, the Industrial Revolution happened for many, many reasons, some which are uh, pretty idiosyncratic. To England and common law and so on. But one of them was like, England ran out of trees and they needed to dig up some coal. And they were like, oh my God, this is actually pretty good. The rest of the world was like, what are you doing? Like, that stuff is dirty. We just cut trees down. The point is that it's not the most obvious countries or entities or cultures that end up winning. And this is why we do have cycles where countries rise and fall. I see a lot of people right now writing what I call geopolitical pornography, where they're basically saying, like, look, US is is good. Two oceans, Mississippi River Delta nothing's ever going to hurt the United States. Like US is going to continue to dominate the world. Or some others saying like China's going to dominate the world. Look at their trend lines. And I just think that a hundred years from now, we're all going to be sitting around here saying like, huh, I really didn't see Korea coming. Like as we're speaking in Korean, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) That's a really good point. Because yeah, I'm going to tie this back in actually, because uh, absolutely, I think there's a massive overlap and I'd love to get your view and whether you agree with my research on this or not. Is there's a massive overlap between the innovation cycle and the hyperpower or superpower of the of the world, the the leading order, if if you like? So absolutely, you're right. That kind of as James Watt's steam engine in the UK, so kind of 1771, kind of came into power. We suddenly started to have more economic might than those ships that you were talking about with the Dutch Republic and the Spanish. You know, it led to massive turmoil, massive war, but we gained the world order and we managed to keep it until the age of steel. And I think, kind of, we had at one point 57% of the world's steel market coming out of the UK. And then there was the rise of Germany and the rise of the US. And obviously, as Britain started to lose global power, Germany rose up and said, in my view anyway, started to go, okay, well, we can challenge this order. We could take this. Thankfully, history went. The other way. And the US was like, hold on a minute, we're pretty powerful now too. And then we saw innovation kind of go. So US then took steel, then took the age of oil and automobiles and mass production, and then took the age of information technology. And this is where I see this changing kind of global order coming. And I'm absolutely with you that we don't necessarily know who it's going to be. But for me, that's why you've got those tensions between China, but China would love to have it. They have issues. But they would still love to have it. Just like Germany would have loved to have had it. But there's, you know, there's other things at play.
2: I, you know, like I'm gonna say, like just to, like right now, if you look around the world, uh, what's happening today? Today is July 12th. You know, just for people listening to this, maybe a little bit later as a timestamp. What's interesting about today is that basically the euro and the U.S. dollar are at parity. That's the macro news of the day. Europe is, if you read The Economist, if you read the media, if you read the pundits out there, it's basically screwed. Russians are going to turn off natural gas. You know, If you look at the December 22nd natural gas futures contract, it's basically like through the roof. It's up, I think, 100 and odd percent since mid-June. It's really bad stuff. And I sit here and I hear a lot of this, like Europe is done, there's nothing to see. But what I see is a diamond in the rough. And the reason I say that is because despite the fact that energy costs in Europe, have been higher for the last decade. Germany has still printed a trade surplus and the current account surplus for a very long time. Now, that's dissipated right now, but that's temporary. That's just the egregious cost of energy. My point is that countries that rest on their laurels don't win. I hear American-centric analysts, and I mean, obviously, I'm American-centric in that I'm, I'm based in the US and I am a US citizen, but I'm also a Canadian citizen, feel much more Canadian than I do American. Not that it matters. The point is, I think they can't see beyond the fact that natural gas and like coal prices are low in the US. You know, and it's like that is not an advantage necessarily. It's not a necessarily an advantage. First of all, US had that advantage for 20 years. Manufacturing a share of the economy has collapsed. Germany has managed to keep manufacturing its share of population of labor at a high rate, despite its higher energy costs. And it has a trade surplus and had one for 20 years. The US has does. You don't want to own an American car. Maybe you want to own Tesla. Maybe, but you know, I'm pretty sure that in a couple of years when everybody else has EV models, you'll want to own whatever else you want. What I'm getting at with this is that these starting advantages can actually make a whole country become lazy. And I think that starting disadvantages are actually something that I see as a reason to innovate. And in the case of Europe right now, what I'm seeing is that they are going to have to innovate to manage they're going to have to because they cannot replace Russian gas purely with LNG. They don't want to burn coal for good reason. They're also going to have to import coal too. So it's not like it's a simple solution. So I think that what comes out of this crisis is going to be really interesting. And I wouldn't write off as the entire macro investing and long-term investor space is writing off right now, Europe and its ability to innovate, especially because Europe really does suck innovating software and services. But when it comes to industrials, Manufacturing, transportation, energy—it's actually pretty good at that.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think you can also add into that kind of if you look back over the past hundred years or so, hydrocarbons have been such a kingmaker. You know, kind of retaining access to. And you again, you talked about kind of Britain cutting down trees for coal, which I thought was a really good story. And then you kind of look at kind of U.S. and its fossil fuel base, and you look at Russia with its fossil fuel base, and Europe doesn't really have one. It isn't a major land of hydrocarbons. It hasn't got much oil, gas, or coal. And that, as you say, when we transition to a green energy revolution, sure, there are other minerals it needs to get hold of. I'm not kind of overlooking that fact. It's not got a a natural disadvantage over others which have got kind of uh, in the old model, in the old energy model, the hydrocarbons under the ground.
2: Absolutely. And listen, look, uh, at the end of the day, we could do a scatterplot. You can do a plot, you know, and on one side, you can do something like, you know, quality of governance, or you can do a geopolitical power index, you know, of material wealth and military might and so on. And on the other axis, you could put commodity exports. Let's look at that. How many commodity exporters are actually global powers throughout human history? And the answer is going to be like very few, very rarely. In fact, a sudden burst of wealth. Of an advantage often leads to the decline of that power. You know, like the famous example of the Spanish showing up in Latin America and just bathing in gold and bringing all this gold and causing all sorts of problems domestically. Like that did not actually help Spain over the long term. Similarly, today, most commodity exporters, significant commodity exporters, are actually not democracies. They're not places where necessarily you think of like, ooh, innovation happens because they can just write checks. For their population to be happy and they don't have to really work hard. One like outlier is Norway, but that's because they came and also Canada and Australia, but they came to their commodity wealth a little bit later in, in time and they had like governance structure put together. So I think that these advantages of like commodity production, they have almost never served as a foundation of empire, almost ever. It's all, usually commodity exporters that tend to be conquered or politically undermined by those who are consumers, who are innovative.
1: Persia was so when I think it was Winston Churchill when he was first admiral of the of the British Navy and he switched from coal power ships to oil power because they were faster than the German ones. And obviously at that point, Persia became strategically important because we had to secure access to oil. To wrap up, Marco, because we've covered so much stuff, but I want to come back to your framework because you had three points. And can I just get you to summarize very quickly what those three points were? Because we've skipped over them. Well, we haven't. We've gone into them. But I want them to come back in the in the listener's mind, because I think they are really important. So here's how I would say it.
2: First of all, the easiest one to think about is reversion to the mean. Reversion to the mean, uh, if you see a trend that is just going in one direction, it's pro- especially when it comes to human societies, it's probably exhausted itself. So uh, reversion to the mean is the easiest way to think about what's going to happen over the next several decades. It's dangerous though, don't overuse it, don't abuse it. There is no mean reversion fair. So that's the first one. The second one is non-linearity. So when you are in a trend, when you finally have identified a trend, it could be a reversion to the mean trend, by the way, do not extrapolate it too far. And one of the reasons for that is that, how much into this have you already been? And then finally, the diamonds in the rough kind of pressure makes diamonds. Starting conditions, negative starting conditions, crappy starting conditions are often the seeds that you're sowing later success. It's the seeds of later success because overcoming those negative externalities or negative starting conditions is what actually creates the superpowers and innovation and
1: paradigm shifts. Superb. I'm going to leave it there, but thank you so much for sharing your views and just having this conversation. It's been absolutely great. Absolutely, Chris. Thank you for having me on.
0: You've been listening to Transitional Matters. Make sure to like, subscribe, and sign up to the show's email newsletter by going to chrismarshall.uk. And we'll see you next time for more from the world of mega trends and transitions. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute an offer or recommendation to buy or sell any securities. Content should be treated as educational and general and should not be seen as a recommendation to use any particular investment strategy.